another episode of the NBN Weekly Recap Podcast. Uh, I'm James Crisofoli. I'm Ryan Boyd. Uh, welcome back. Hope you had a good week. And we're going to get right to it for this week's stories. A lot of stuff happening. Uh, first off, um, the fiery testimony of Michael Cohen in front of the um, in front of Congress this week. Um, it was the House uh, sorry Oversight Committee. House Oversight. Committee. House Oversight Committee. Um, so he testified. He gave his initial opening statement about thirty minutes long. And then answered questions for hours on end for all of, um, and we learned a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, if if what he's saying is true, a lot of interesting anecdotes there. He submitted a lot of documents um, supporting uh, as evidence for his claims. Essentially, all every Republican on the committee just was engaging in character assassination, trying to claim that. Nothing he says should be believed because he's going to jail for lying to Congress. So why should Congress believe him again? And Democrats were trying to kind of more substantively draw out some of his claims against Trump. His opening statement was filled with allegations against Trump. Uh, He submitted a personal check that Trump signed for the hush money payments uh, for um, Stormy Daniels. He told anecdotes about how Trump was racist. He... uh, talked about how he thought that one at one White House meeting, Trump's son, Don Jr., whispered to him about the um, Moscow-Trump Tower meeting, um, and so saying that he thought Trump knew about it. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of allegations there. We learned a lot, but again, Michael Cohen, probably not the most trustworthy guy, so. Yeah, I mean, I think we learned a lot, but then also didn't learn a lot in that a or lot a lot was substantiated. Uh, yeah, it was substantiated learn. in that a lot of the things I think just have kind of underscored dynamics that we've already seen. Mm-hmm. Whether it be the fact that Republicans were going to be awful and not do their job, and just try and you know uh, you know obscure facts and lie and and you know not really try and get to the truth and just try to protect President Trump. We knew that that would happen, and you know we saw it at play. It wasn't really surprising, I guess. Um, we we. We knew, um, you know, that that uh, Trump had approved of the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. I mean, he's he was on video already, you know, or on tape already, um, you know, talking about those payments, confirming the payments. So, you know, that the check is, you know, obviously good substantiation of that. But, you know, a lot of the things Cohen was testifying to, we already knew. I mean, the fact that Trump's racist, <laughs> I think we've known that, <laughs> that for a while shocker. now. Um so, so you know, it was an interesting moment to hear that in testimony, uh, you know, uh, in Congress on national TV uh, from you know from Michael Cohen, obviously a person you know well sourced within Trump world and close to Trump. Um, but I don't know if it was terribly uh, revelatory. No, for, yeah, for many respects. My- and then the Democrats, a lot of the Democrats did a good job. I thought Ocasio Cortez did a good job questioning him and trying to trying to draw out sort of more evidence. Um, he Cohen refused to talk about anything pertaining to Russian collusion and said that he had no personal knowledge of any collusion that Trump engaged in with which uh, the the Republicans seized on to say there was no collusion. Yeah, I mean, I think on the on the question, I think Ocasio Cortez did a very good job, and I think a lot of people recognize that. You know, she she was effective at you know sort of drawing answers out and actually waiting for responses and asking follow ups. Something that surprised me and that actually was a little bit of a revelation is just 
how bad some of these members of Congress are at asking questions mm-hmm. and just uh, conducting like hearings and, 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 and panel discussions. It was really like, <laughs> it was really just terrible. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't put sentences together. They were stuttering all the time and they, they didn't ask follow-up questions. They asked questions that didn't even make any sense a lot of the time. And it was the funniest thing on the Republican side is they kept you know, deferring to Jim Jordan to ask questions, and it's, is he's the best they've got? <laughs> uh, do they think for some reason that he's a compelling speaker or something? Because he was terrible. I mean, yeah. He didn't ask any good questions, no. and he just, uh, you know, sounded like a crazy person. Um, and, and Mark Meadows that, was the worst. Uh, uh, Mark Meadows, yes. <laughs> he brought a, a African-American woman he who had Patton, yeah. Yeah, with Trump. <laughs> To, to say, prove he's uh, say, not racist. Yeah, essentially, he's not racist because he's, this woman worked for him. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, and it's it's really incredible, <laughs> um, you know. And just the the behavior of of the panel of yeah. of the Republicans was just, you know, yeah, obviously beyond just the fact that they were covering for Trump, how they actually, you know, their demeanor, how they asked questions, and how they carried themselves was just pretty embarrassing overall. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, so Ryan, you want to talk a little bit about the newest house, uh, gun control bills? Yeah. I mean, I think this was kind of polar opposite of what we saw at the hearing where you see the house, you know, um, you know, actually doing something good. That's, that's not, you know, kind of embarrassing and awful. That doesn't, you know, uh, make us hate our representatives. Um, and, you know, essentially, uh, the Democrats passed two new gun control measures and, you know, the, the main purpose of what they've done is they've expanded background checks to all gun sales, um, meaning, you know, the gun show loophole and private online sales now require back or if the measure were to pass would now require background checks. Um, whereas, you know, under the current system, you can go to a gun show and you don't have to get a background check to purchase a firearm. Um, and they also, you know, made changes around certain regulations, uh, one being the fact that you know, under current law, if, if uh, you know, the authorities do not complete a background check within three days, then the firearm uh, purchase is, you know, automatically authorized. And they've, uh, you know, changed the law to extend that period to, um, you know, days, give, right? yeah, to give the, mm-hmm. to give authorities more time to conduct background checks before purchases are authorized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these two bills, one one sort of gave more time and one expanded background checks to private uh, firearm sales, P- both passed the House with all pretty much uh, blanket Democratic support and a few Republicans. Now they go to the Senate where they will probably die. The White House has already come out and said that they would veto, Trump would veto it. So not much hope for them actually being passed, um, which is kind of just absolutely ridiculous that this is still a partisan issue and it's such a you know that's such a minuscule change (laughs) to expanding gun control and still no one can agree on that um which is just frustrating uh and it just kind of makes made it was kind of a wake-up call for me in terms of how happy i was about the new progressive you know wave of the of the house and and having control of the house and just checking those hopes because, you know, with a divided government, it's not much is going to be able to get done. Um, and I think it's it's really just looking forward to 2020. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one interesting 
you know, dynamic at play is the fact that, you know, Democrats finally have um, a governing majority in the House that is supportive of gun control and is, and is, you know, sort of, you know, committed to the more progressive liberal ideas of the party. There are still some centrists and moderates, but they're not the type of moderates, uh, they're not, you know, the type of moderates that are uh, against gun control, for example. They're very pro-gun control a lot of the time. And, and like you were saying, they're not moderates from rural areas. They're not moderates from, a lot of suburban. Not, yeah, exactly. It's mostly moderates from suburban areas who are generally pretty progressive on social issues and maybe a little more fiscally conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see movement um, on gun control and, and you see unity around these issues in a way that had never happened in previous um, Democratic Congresses because or Democratic Houses um, because, you know, when they had majorities, when they last had majorities, there was significant contingent of people, um, you know, of Congress people from the, or of representatives from the South, of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people from very rural areas where um, gun control isn't popular. Um, but I also think even, you know, Congress people who are from, you know, more rural areas are, are still, you know, willing to support gun control. A lot of the seats that were really close in 2018, um, you know, whether it be, you know, Will Hurd in Texas or um, Mario Diaz-Ballard in, you know, South Florida. You see a lot of those close races um, that are top 2020 targets. There's some pressure there for, for those Congress, uh, for those congressmen to, to support um, gun control. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, we're going to run through some of the other, some of the um, week's stories um, very quickly, so the North Korea summit um, happened this week, a smashing success, mm-hmm. um, the, the sequel we were all waiting for. Um, Trump and Kim Jong-un met in Vietnam and had to cut the, the meeting short because they couldn't reach an agreement. And uh, essentially they're claiming that uh, Kim Jong-un wanted lifting of all U.S. sanctions on North Korea um, in return for full denuclearization. And the Trump administration was not willing to accept that. And so they figured that there's no more talks that needed to be had. And they ended it there. But then what is bizarre is the North Koreans then came out and said, no, we never asked for all lifting. We asked for partial lifting. Mm-hmm. And it's, well, <laughs> is this a miscommunication? Is the, are the, is the Trump administration basically lying about what happened with the North Koreans? Or It's, it, it's funny that we don't know whether to trust Trump or... Kim Jong-un's <laughs> press like, secretaries. I, I, and, I, maybe like, we just assume they're both lying yeah, at this point. Yeah. I, I don't know. But, you know, I think a lot of concern, again, on the issue that just by by going and meeting with Kim Jong-un, you know, you're giving him some credibility. Legitimacy. And yeah. legitimacy. And for what? I mean, they didn't get, they haven't gotten anything in return. They haven't gotten anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's, it's you know, I'm in favor of of diplomacy, and I think it's it's good that you know you're supposed to reach out with with your adversaries and, and you know try to to reach a diplomatic solution. You know, because in this instance, for example, like, you know, especially uh, the military solution is just unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, so there needs to be reach out, but it needs to be done properly. And yeah. it's like they don't do any preparation. Trump is is totally not ready to negotiate. He doesn't know what he wants, and he doesn't know what concessions he's prepared to give and not give. Uh, and then obviously it's going to be unproductive. And that leads us to the next uh, piece of news because while 
a lot of our foreign diplomats were off in North Korea dealing with that. A real crisis was happening between India and Pakistan um, this week, where they've had a, you know a long-running uh, dispute over the area of Kashmir, um, which is in between India and Pakistan. It's disputed territory. Um, the north is controlled by Pakistan. The south is controlled by India. Um, and so this has been disputed since the 1940s, and there's, there's been a, a lot of conflicts in the decades since uh, after that. But um, just this week, um, Pakistanis, uh, or the, the Indians um, attacked, bombed a uh, militant group in Kashmir that's a terrorist group, but it's kind of sponsored by Pakistanis government. Um, and then Pakistan, the Pakistanis responded by um, shooting down uh, an Indian airplane and capturing one of its pilots, um, and then but then they release the pilot and um, are trying to de-escalate, but it's just fear, a very uh, tense situation because both of these countries are nuclear powers. Um, they have a long long history of hostilities, um, and this should be what our diplomats are really focusing on right now. And, and Trump was saying that um, he wants to send someone in to try and de-escalate, but. Uh, this this is really a scary, tense situation. And I think it just, again, points to the fact that there are real, you know, crises happening in, in the world. There are, are real issues that, you know, the U.S. is is in a position to deal with if there are the right people there. Uh, other news, Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister, or sorry, President of... Prime Minister. Is, oh, Prime Minister, yes. I was right the first time. Of Israel. Um is uh, being indicted by it's someone in his cabinet, correct? So the attorney general, Attur- okay, uh, attorney yeah, general. the Israeli attorney general that he appointed, that though. He, yes, he appointed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, announced that he was uh, he'll be indicting um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in three separate cases: uh, two for fraud, uh, one for bribery. Mm-hmm. Um, bribery being the most serious charge that that he's up against. His wife, Sarah, was also indicted, um, I believe, you know, sometime in, in, at some point in 2018. Um, So you have the prime minister and the prime minister's wife, um, both having been indicted and, you know, set to to stand trial. You have an election in Israel um, taking place this April. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the timing of this is obviously crucial. And what that what that I think especially meant is that um, you know the Israeli uh, Israel's attorney general was under extreme pressure from the right and from the Likud party and Netanyahu's party to not announce these not announce these indictments uh, before the election because mm-hmm. they said it would be interference it would be unfair and essentially uh, the attorney general withstood that pressure and said you know you know followed you know what he was supposed to do uh, in these circumstances and I think. Uh, you know, a testament to the, to the rule of law um, in that, you know, he withstood political pressure, um, you know, from people in his own party and indicted the prime minister, you know, right before an election. Mm-hmm. The James Comey of the Middle East. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, True I, honorable man. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Um, but now, now he's got to write a book. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, if it was James Comey, he would announce the indictments in a new book he was selling. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I think, uh, there are significant, you know, ramifications for how the Israeli election plays. Um, yeah. so basically Netanyahu's, who's Netanyahu's main rivals, um, you know, is a party led by, uh, former IDF generals. 
um, you know, who obviously are aiming, uh, they're to the, to the left of Netanyahu, sort of a center, centrist type party led by former military leaders. And, you know, they're already in a strong position to basically, um, you know, challenge Netanyahu on security issues, because that's essentially where, you know, most of his support comes from the fact that people think he's a strong leader. He, you know, is, is, you know, very strong on issues of defense and security. And so, you know, obviously running against generals makes that a little bit tougher. And this indictment only adds to that, um, you know, only adds to those troubles for Netanyahu, who could really, um, who could lose. Um, and then the last big piece of news this week that we're going to cover, uh, the um, conviction of George Pell, uh, cardinal for the Catholic Church. Um, he was found guilty of four charges, or sorry, one um, charge of uh, sexual penetration of a, of a child and four charges of indecent acts in front of children um, during his time as um, with the Catholic Church. So, um, again, this is just another, another incidence, not just, but this is another incidence of um, the Catholic Church suffering uh, really catastrophic blows in terms of these um, molestation and uh, sexual indecency um, allegations and, and now actually turning into legal matters. Um, and so uh, we'd, we'd seen this with um, the recent defrocking of uh, a cardinal by the Pope, and now this is, um, this, just a, uh, this is another incidence of that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's good to actually see someone, you know, get convicted and mm-hmm. you know, like face actual ramifications. Um, I think it, it is sort of hopefully a bit of a new chapter in people being held accountable for yeah. some of the, you know, terrible abuses that have happened. And a lot of people have gotten away with a lot of things mm-hmm. uh, for a long time. Yeah. All right. I think that does it for us. Uh, please check out the weekly recap article on the NBN website. Uh, Thanks for joining and have a good week.